Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Once again, my name is Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. My name is Scott Wright. I'm a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. I was going to let you go second, but you were in the middle of taking a sip from your glass. Yeah, so I, I have two drinks today. ahead of you. Two drinks. Today. Is there alcohol in either of those? Nah. You're not doing it right. <laughs> oh, no, I know. You have, I see you have a cup over there. What's yeah, there's cup? no alcohol in it either. Uh, and we talked about this last week. We were going to drink at every one of these, and it's only been me so far that's held that consistent throughout our 100 plus episodes. Except today, you're not. That's true. And I'm nervous when I don't drink. I told you guys this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I told you that might be another problem. Jitters. Yeah, I think you may be on to something there. <clears throat> Are you sober today? Yeah. 100%. 100%. Well, you know, whatever's <laughs> left over from yesterday. Yeah. Kind of like oh, last week. Oh, man. Okay. Well, um, so yesterday I played pickleball again. And did you hurt your butt again? I hurt my butt cheek. Same one. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm doing, and I'm not sure what muscle that is. Uh, you're not doing uh, it right, whatever you're doing. I don't know. Maybe I'm doing it too much, too too full force. Yeah. I guess, is maybe. it on your is it on your hand that you used with the with no. the paddle? No. It's your opposite, opposite hand. So it's your leading leg. I don't know. It's, yeah, something going on with that leg yeah. when I'm doing that. But I have learned the secret to winning every pickleball game is have your partner be a twenty something year old. Oh yeah, that probably helps a lot. Yeah. So I played. Okay. Jake and Julie Graves right. played. You know who they are. They've, They've been, on, both the been on the show. They have. And then their son, Jacob Graves, was my partner. Very athletic young man. Yes. And I don't, he's, you know, in his 20s. And so uh, he basically covered about 75% of the court. Okay. And I handled the other 25 and most of the time got my serves in. And that's pretty much all. I mean, we had, that was a winning competition. <laughs> hey, you did your part. Yeah. Well, it's part. like I told you earlier when we were talking about this, I used to think that I was a really good flag football coach. And then one year, Jacob wasn't on my team anymore because he got too old to play. And I realized I wasn't that good at all. <laughs> Jacob scored all of the touchdowns. It was Anybody could have had, had him run the ball. And, yeah, pretty much. And looked pretty and good won. standing on the sidelines <laughs> doing nothing. So That's right. That's right. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it was fun. Had a good day. Excellent. Yep. Do we want to talk about your trip to Europe? Um, no, because when this airs, I'm maybe home by then. Yeah, yeah, you will be. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, <laughs> yeah, I'm going, I'm going to go to Europe and by the time you hear this, I'll be back. And then we can talk about it. Yeah. When you I'll, get back. I'll let you know how everything is. All right. Yep. Um, so I told you guys earlier this week, we've already got some really good feedback about our 100th episode. My coworker, Denny, mm-hmm. she said that it was awesome the way that we all worked it out and the little mini celebration for reaching our milestone. She thought that was one of our best episodes. So she was very excited. She liked the way that we picked the other shows that were our favorites and talked about them. So it was a good show guys. I hope, I hope others went back and listened to some of those, especially the ones that are not on iTunes that people may not have listened to. Yes. Eric Rudolph and James Patterson. Yeah. um, Is it James Patterson or is he the author? It's Patterson. Uh, Albert. Albert. Albert Patterson. Yeah, James Patterson is the author of uh, mystery novels or many, whatever. Many, many books. Yeah. yeah. My bad. So, we also have another shout out. Um, we received an email with a suggestion this week from Sarah Payne. Thank you very much, Sarah. We're going to start looking into that. And uh, uh, we'll You said it's an know. Alabama case. It is an Alabama case. Okay. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll kind of look into that and see, see what we can do with that. Yeah. Okay. And thank you for being a listener, Sarah. Yeah. Um, you guys ready to do Boys on the Tracks Part 3? I don't know. Are we ready? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Uh, me too. I don't know. All right. 
So I want you guys to feel free to jump in at any time today, ask questions. Speaking metaphorically, I'm not married to this case. I'm not even engaged to this case, but this case and I have been going out for about three weeks now. Uh, so I know a little bit about it. So I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but I, I know the, I, I know more than we we're going to be able to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So ask if so, I don't explain something right. I think I have the grasp of it, basically speaking, generally speaking. Yeah. No I expert, a, though. I think you've done a great job with this case. And um, let me ask you this before we get started. Are you going to give a little bit of a recap from last week? Yes. Or is there like a, okay. Yeah. All right. Because I yeah. need that. Okay. All right. Okay. So one thing I need to clear up, I have been saying the name of the county in Arkansas where the story takes place is spelled S-A-L-I-N-E. It looks like saline, but I have realized that it is Saline County. Oh, that's how they say it. Saline. Yeah. In okay. Arkansas, they call it Saline County. So I think I might've mispronounced that a couple of times in the first two episodes. So I'm going to try to clean that up today. Okay. Saline. Saline. Okay. All right. Okay. So when we left you last week, our good friend, for now anyway, Dan Harmon, the grand jury special prosecutor, He's looking into the deaths of the boys on the tracks. He had just rushed into the credit union office of Linda Ives, the mother of one of the two boys, and told her that one of his confidential informants, a burly bartender named Keith McCaskill, had just been found brutally murdered in his driveway in his home in Saline County. I did it again. I did it wrong. Saline County. Saline. Saline County. McCaskill had been stabbed over 100 times and pretty much his entire body was covered in defensive wounds. Oh my gosh. Mm. The 45-year-old bartender slash bouncer had fought hard for his life and it was a life that he feared for in the days and weeks leading up to his death. It would be revealed later in the weeks after his body was discovered that McCaskill had told several of his acquaintances that his life was in danger because of what he claimed to know about what took place that night on the tracks. McCaskill would not be the last person who was suspected to have ties to the deaths of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, who would turn up dead under mysterious circumstances in the months after the boys' bodies were found in August of 1987. In fact, there were a total of at least six people who were believed to have knowledge about that night who died under clouds of varying degrees of suspicion. I don't know that this guy's death is suspicious. I think <clears throat> it's pretty obvious that he was stabbed to death. Yes, but I mean, why? The why yeah, uh, is the what's why. suspicious yeah. about does, all of these. That's what ties these together. Okay, does, does Fami agree with that, that he was stabbed to death? I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I don't think question. he could deny that one. Okay. Fami Malik. We'll talk about him some in a minute, too. Oh, great. We'll get back to those deaths, too, uh, those mysterious deaths. But first, we're going to jump into the time machine that we have built for you on purpose here. And uh, we're going to tell you another story that is going to make you think that you're listening to the wrong episode for a few minutes. Okay. All right. I'm ready. But I promise this will all make sense by the next time you hear Shane Givens sing The Legend of Hannah Brady. Okay. Do we want to talk about that song on today's show? I would love to get Shane on sometime. I know that the genesis of that story has something to do with a crime when he wrote it for the Shane Gibbons band. Mm-hmm. It's got something to do with a crime. I'd love to get him on the show sometime and let him tell us. Oh, we'll do that. that we'll story. just we'll table that and do that. You know, it's real hard to get him talking about something. <laughs> right. He doesn't enjoy talking. Yeah. Uh, all right. So back to our story. Like I said, each and every one of our listeners will have a light bulb moment. Sometime in the next few minutes, as we weave together two seemingly unrelated stories and eventually into the tale of what most likely happened to Kevin Ives and Don Henry. To this day, no one really knows for certain, at least not with enough certainty to try and prove it in a court of law. 
But there is plenty of circumstantial evidence that points to the conclusion that we will reach at the end of this episode. Not that we're trying to drag our listeners along with us. You folks out there listen uh, to the facts such as they are and the conjecture much as it is Mm -hmm. and make up your own minds. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's time for our quick trip in the time machine. I'm going to lean forward and hit the big red button that's going to send us on our merry way. All right. That didn't take long at all. Everybody unstrap your seatbelts, dust yourselves off, and look around. You are in 1982. Okay. E.T. was the big news at the box office that summer. I love that movie. And Judith Ann Neely was still a few months away from committing two counts of murder. Mm. Kevin Ives and Don Henry were still in elementary school. When a man named Adler Berryman Seal, we're going to call him Barry Seal for the rest of this show. Okay. Moved his business operation from Louisiana to Arkansas. Now, what exactly was Barry Seal's business, you ask? Cocaine. Okay. Oh, my. So, not a storefront. Not, not so much. So, I, I looked this up. Dennis Quaid, one of the, he was a famous movie actor. He played yes. Gordo Cooper in The Right Stuff in 83, and he played Jerry Lee Lewis in Great Balls of Fire in 89. Yes. yes. He wrote this magazine article for Newsweek a few years back. And he explained that in the 80s, cocaine was basically everywhere. Maybe this is not a revelation if you are old enough to remember being in the 80s. Quaid wrote that cocaine was even in the budgets for some of the big movies at the time, often disguised under the line item, petty cash. Quaid wrote, quote, instead of having a cocktail, you would have a line. It was supplied on movie sets because everyone was doing it. So at the time, cocaine was a widely accepted, if highly illegal, recreational drug. Okay. In fact, Quode's Newsweek article was titled, My Favorite Mistake. Although oh, he, so, so he's admitting that he... Yeah, he admitted in the article that he had become addicted and that he was an addict for a decade before he quit using cocaine. So understand we're not trying to convince anybody out there that cocaine was or is a good thing. No, cocaine is bad. Just that it was absolutely everywhere in the country in the year 1982, which is where we are now. Yes. Okay. And an awful lot of that cocaine was coming into the United States in 1982 because of Barry Seal and his new business venture in a little town called Mena, Arkansas. Okay. Mena is located about 120 miles due west of Little Rock, the state capital of Arkansas. In 1982, there were about 5,200 people living in Mena, so it was slightly larger than our hometown here in Center, which is about 3,600 people. And just like here in Cherokee County, Alabama, Polk County, Arkansas, of which Mena is the county seat, had an airport. It was called the Intermountain Municipal Airport, and it's still there, but that doesn't matter. And it was there in a few buildings adjacent to one of the airport's two 5,000-foot runways that Barry Seal set up his recently relocated from Louisiana business venture. Seal moved his operation from Louisiana to Arkansas because a year earlier in 81, Seal had begun smuggling into the U.S., large amounts of cocaine for the Medellin drug cartel. Oh my. And that meant, among other things, that Seal was doing business with one of the richest, most influential, and most dangerous men in the world, Pablo Escobar. Yes. Mm-hmm. Have yes. you guys seen Narcos on Netflix? Oh. The first two seasons tell the story of Pablo Escobar and the Colombian drug lords. I've not seen it, but I, I know... The story. I yeah. know who Pablo if you, is. If you watched The Last of Us and you're sad because you don't get to see Pedro Pascal again until next year, wrong. <laughs> He's in the first two seasons of Narcos. <laughs> yeah. 
So pull that up and you will know what we're talking about. He's also fantastic in Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's right. For the limited amount of time that he's in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't. No no spoilers. spoilers. (laughs) No spoilers. (laughs) You got to watch for yourself. All right. So without revealing the ending of the Barry Seal portion of our story just yet, even if your name is not Alexander, it often turned out to be a horrible, no good, very bad idea to get involved with people like Pablo Escobar in the early 1980s. Hint. That's a little hint about what happens later to Barry Seal. Yeah, I got that. Yeah. Anyway, so Barry Barry Seal. Yeah, I was trying to be subtle with that one. Uh, He's now flying cocaine into the United States for a South American drug cartel. See, I told you guys way back in episode one that I was going to mention that at some point down the road. And here we are. Now we're talking about it. A man of his word, this mediocre journalist. That you are. Uh Uh-huh. Seal's smuggling operation, which he officially called Rich Mountain Aviation, included dozens of planes and helicopters. So many that law enforcement in Louisiana had become quite curious about all the late-night flights and suspicious activity at his aircraft hangars in the Louisiana backwaters. Yeah, so now he's moving. Now he's, he's and it's 1982 now, so he's packed the whole thing up, and he's moved it to Mena, Arkansas. Okay. In Louisiana, SEAL's standard method of package delivery had been to use low-flying airplanes and to drop bundles of drug in bags attached to parachutes into desolate areas for pickup by drug dealers on the ground. Okay. So SEAL, who himself was a very experienced pilot with his own miniature air force, was the total package, so to speak, for the Medellin drug cartel. He was shipping and delivery for the drug lords down in Colombia, and for his troubles, he was making about half a million dollars per flight in 1982. Wow. Dang. Yeah. Wow. Oh, to go back to 1982 and make half a million dollars in a day. Per flight? But I guess, you know, you just never knew if you were... If gonna land safely yeah. or not? Yeah. I mean, you could be shot down. It's true. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's dangerous to take on there. Now, I have it. Uh, I have yet to find it anywhere documented that Barry Seal and our good friend, Special Prosecutor Dan Harmon, ever met face to face. But I'll bet they knew a few of the same people in Arkansas and possibly even in Columbia. Yeah, educated guess, but still. Listeners will recall from last week's episode that by the late 1980s, our good friend Dan Harmon was also the subject of a very hush hush federal drug investigation. And he is not going to be our good friend for much longer. So if you need to prepare yourself mentally for a little separation anxiety, now's a good time to go ahead and start that process. I feel like a few of our more skillfully deductible followers are already beginning to see how the pieces of this puzzle are eventually going to fit together. The rest of you out there, follow me. This entire picture will come into focus, I promise. So speaking of drug investigations, it was not too long after Barry Seal moved his smuggling operation to Arkansas that authorities there also began to think that something nefarious was going on involving Seal and his airplanes. However, much like what had happened in Louisiana when authorities there began to investigate Seal, it seemed that any time someone in Arkansas began digging a little deeper into exactly what was happening at the airport in Mena, someone somewhere higher up than they was willing to go to great lengths to keep investigators at bay and SEAL's smuggling operation up and running. Sure enough, it would be revealed years later that by 1983, SEAL had begun working with the DEA as a confidential informant. Mm. But he was also getting away with an awful lot on the local level, or so it seemed to some of the investigators who dug around to try and discover what SEAL was up to. It appeared to several of them that SEAL must have had more than a few members of local law enforcement on his payroll. Another item of interest 
that was taking place in the summer of 1982, there was in existence at that time a secret CIA program being run out of the office of then Vice President George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. The program supplied weapons to a group of rebels called the Contras who were trying to overthrow the leftist government of Nicaragua down in southern Central America. So somebody's taking guns down there in big airplanes that are empty on the way back. Or not, not. Why not load them uh, up? Why not load them up with yeah, drugs? Yeah. I would think that you would have to have cops on your payroll to make this work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think you could do it any other way. Yeah. yeah. It, there's absolutely, it doesn't make any sense that, that you wouldn't have that. Well, when the vice president calls and says, hey, there's no investigation here, nothing to see, walk away. Leave Barry Seal alone. Let yeah. him run his drugs because he's doing us a favor on the way down. You got it, sir. And that's what you say, right? Yeah. So the whole that whole CIA project was a pet uh, program of then President Ronald Reagan, and he was very fond of this program. He was big against the communists and well, the then leftists. You get around having to vote this into action. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So what happened was the U.S. passed the Bolin Amendments in 1982, specifically to prevent the federal government from providing military support to the Contras in Nicaragua. So Reagan's top secret program was supposed to get canceled since it could no longer legally exist. At that point, Reagan and Bush and the CIA began looking for illegal ways to keep the operation going. And that decision was the beginning of the full-fledged fiasco, which ended up being known as the Iran-Contra affair. Mm-hmm. But I'm not touching that story with a 10-foot pole here today. Yeah. No. Or maybe ever. Yeah. If you want to look it up, knock yourself out. Let's just leave that one be. Yeah, let's stick to the boys on the tracks. Let's see if we can find out what happened here. So before Reagan and Bush decided to go all in on breaking the law to send all those bombs and bullets to Central America, they tried to find a way to blame the flow of cocaine into the U.S. on the socialist government of Nicaragua. This purely for political purposes, and this is where Barry Seal comes in. Okay. Without hopping down yet another rabbit hole, Seal had gotten into some trouble in Florida in 1983, and he ended up becoming the government informant, like I mentioned, because of his extensive knowledge about the South American drug trade. Eventually, Seal reluctantly agreed to place a camera in the cargo bay of one of his large drug-running planes in exchange for not having to go to prison as long as he cooperated. So he cooperated. Yeah. And just to be clear, this was a deal that Barry Seal made with the federal government, not the state of Florida. That's where he'd been convicted of drug smuggling. Specifically, SEAL made his deal with a DEA-led drug task force that was operating out of Vice President Bush's office at the same time that other CIA secret program was operating out of the same office. So there's how those two might have been welded together. Yeah. And the words we're searching for here are uh, plausible deniability. Yes. And Mm. Barry SEAL didn't have any. Mm. He was at the mercy now of the people who were pulling his strings. That's unfortunate for him, yeah. And so following through on his promise, Seal uh, flew down to Nicaragua and took photos with his DEA-supplied hidden camera, all while a group of cartel members, assisted by cabinet-level members of the Nicaraguan government, loaded his plane with cocaine. One of the men plainly visible in the photos was Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar himself. Wow, he was actually helping load the plane? Or he was just overseeing Maybe he was it. Yeah, I'm sure he's, he's making there. sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's like when your husband cuts the grass. He just supervises other people cutting the grass. <laughs> he, I can only assume. No, he actually cuts the grass. All right. Well, it's good that he's able to unwind somewhere. <laughs> so, so the very last thing that Barry Seal wanted 
to have happen was for that photo to make its way into the pages of one of the biggest newspapers in the country at the time. And I just now realized that I should have had Katie download a sad trombones sound effect to go right there. But I didn't think about that. I understand that the DEA and Vice President Bush did not give one hoot about Barry Seal. Their agreement with Seal is made to serve one purpose. They wanted to tie smuggling of cocaine into the U.S. to Nicaragua so that Reagan could use that evidence to try and convince Congress to repeal the Bolin Amendments, thereby providing a legal path for the CIA to reinstitute its program of military assistance to the Contra rebels. Mm -hmm. I know what everybody's thinking. What the hell does any of this have to do with two dead boys on the railroad tracks in central Arkansas? Well, you said he'd moved his stuff to Yeah, I'm getting, we're going to tie it all together, but okay. it's right now it doesn't sound like it makes any sense. It sounds like you're listening to the wrong episode. No, I think you're doing a great job with this. Like I, I, I can, well, and I know the story, so I guess you that's do know why the story. I can see where you're yeah. going. So. All right, so within a month of Seal snapping the photos of his plane being loaded with drugs by Pablo Escobar, those images had been released by the Washington Times newspaper in D.C. Yeah, so the attempt to incriminate the government of Nicaragua for drug smuggling was complete, but Congress still was not persuaded to rescind the Boland Amendments. Mm -hmm. And so that's when Reagan and Bush and Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North made the series of decisions that eventually led to the Iran-Contra affair. Mm -hmm. One other important outcome of those leaked photos, at least to Barry Seal, was the outcome that I sort of hinted at a few minutes ago, not so subtly, apparently. Suddenly, his life wasn't worth even one of the tightly rolled $1 bills that Seal often used to quality test the product he was transporting. The only people who any longer saw dollar signs in their eyes when they looked at Barry Seal was the team of Colombian assassins that was hired to hunt him down and shoot him dead. Yep. Which they did in February of 1986 in Seal's hometown of Baton Rouge. Oh my. That event took place a full 18 months before Kevin Ives and Don Henry were killed in Saline County, Arkansas, out there on those railroad tracks, at a location that many amateur sleuths and a few proclaimed eyewitnesses maintain to this day was the site of a parachute drop of cocaine from an airplane, a delivery method inspired by the illegal activities Barry Seal had introduced to the state of Arkansas when he moved there in 1982. Now, it would be years before Kevin's mother, Linda Ives, learned anything about what we have just told you here today. All the events that I described took place in the years leading up to the death of her son, Kevin, and her son's friend, Don, on the railroad tracks. But if we're going to tie this story together in the way that most people believe it all went down that night on the tracks, then for it to all fit together, the story of Barry Seal had to be told. Yes. And now it has been. Okay. And just to be clear, the boys were found dead on those tracks. What? What was the year? August the 23rd, 1987. 87. That's so right. by this time, Barry Seal is dead. He's dead. But someone else is well, that's right. continuing yes. his flight. Yeah. So okay. We, yeah. So if you feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose for the last 20 minutes, <laughs> you are not alone. Me too. This by far is the most comprehensive, convoluted story that we have ever tackled yeah. at True Crime on Easy Street. And we will try to make it all make sense after these words from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by A&W Outdoor Services, located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. It's almost time to tidy up the deck, clean the gutters, and spruce up the yard and landscaping around your home, lake house, or creekside cabin. And who better to do that for you than the professional crew at A&W Outdoor Services? Call 256-706-7964 and let Alan and his crew do all the hard work for you. 
so you can spend your time this summer enjoying your piece of Cherokee County and clean, carefree comfort. Call Allen today for a free estimate or to get on the A&W Spring Schedule before it's full. That's A&W Outdoor Services at 256-706-7964. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Wass Lake. Swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club. Climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village. Hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve. Take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park. And much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post-Herald is a great way to do that. The Post-Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post-Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post-Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription drive. That's cheap. So call call 256-927-4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post-Herald. That's 256-927-4476. Thank you for being a sponsor. We're proud to have another show sponsor, Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill. Faraway is a small, family-owned business with small-town values located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. But they can do big things for you. Call Faraway for anything you want done to a tree, or a lot of them. You want your trees removed? Call Faraway. You want your trees cut up and milled into lumber or ground into mulch? Call Faraway. Faraway is licensed and insured and can handle any job, big or small, from tree trimming to stump grinding and everything in between. So call Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill today at 256 256- 393-5398. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Thank you so much to all our sponsors. Where are we going with this, Scott? All right. So everything we just talked about, that was a lot. Barry Seal and cocaine from Columbia and Pablo Escobar and nighttime drug drops and airports in Arkansas and Iran-Contra and Olive North and all of the rest. Yes. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. But remember what we mentioned last week in part two about that episode of Unsolved Mysteries that aired in October of 1988, the one during which Deputy District Attorney Richard Garrett cryptically declared that Kevin Ives and Don Henry had probably died because they had seen something they should not have seen, something to do with drugs, Garrett specified, and they were killed for it. So our listeners now know what he was talking about. Yes. Because we just laid it out for you. But Linda Ives did not know anything about all of those seedy details as Richard Garrett apparently did. When Linda Ives heard Deputy DA Garrett say those words on national TV, she still had no idea what he was talking about. 
And guess who else knew what Garrett was talking about? Our good friend, Special Prosecutor Dan Harmon, as we will find out in a few minutes. But Linda Ives didn't, not yet. In fact, it would be 1994 before she stumbled across notes from an FBI investigation into the boys' murders that referred back to those events in 1987 and 88, among other things. The notes inferred, but offered no concrete proof that the fates of her son and Don Henry probably had something to do with the drug smuggling operations at the airport in Mina, operations which continued unabated for several years after the assassination of Barry Seal in 1986. So suddenly to Linda in 94 now, what Garrett said years earlier on NBC had made, that made total sense to her when she read those notes. Recall that Arkansas State Medical Examiner Fami Malik's autopsy findings that the boys died that night in August of 87 from THC intoxication had been officially overruled by Chief Medical Examiner of Metropolitan, uh, Metropolitan Atlanta. His name was Dr. Joseph Burton. We mentioned him last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he determined that the boys were either unconscious or dead when that train passed over them. Mm-hmm. All that Linda Ives knew in 1988 while she was watching that episode of Unsolved Mysteries was that no one could be trusted to get to the truth about what had happened to the two boys. Not the local sheriff, not the local district attorney, not the state medical examiner, not the Arkansas State Police. Unfortunately, no. Right. In fact, during one investigation into the murders on the tracks, an FBI document from 1993 that was otherwise heavily redacted before being released to the public did not black out this one sentence. It read, a cover-up of the investigation exists with law enforcement. Oh. That's from an FBI investigation. So finally in 1994, Linda Ives was beginning to learn about the operations at the airport in Mina and also what everyone else seemed to know already about what had happened on the tracks that night. It was then that the enormity of what Linda Ives had been up against for all that time began to become clear to her. Armed with this new information, Linda Ives could then view the mysterious deaths of at least six individuals with ties to the case in a brand new light. Now light bulbs are going off everywhere. Do your own research if you want to find out about those mysterious other deaths, but believe me when I tell you that they were all very mysterious and infuriating. Linda Ives was infuriated when she started making these connections. So was I, so was Kelly. I mean, it's, yes. it's crazy. So as I was reading about all of these murders that were mysterious execution style, some of them that all seemed to be tied. These people knew each other or they seemed to know somebody who was on the tracks or claimed to have been. It reminded me of the scene in Goodfellas when De Niro's character begins to get paranoid after the Lufthansa heist and all of the other hoods who were involved suddenly start to turn up dead. There's that montage of dead bodies yep. as the piano exit from Layla by Derek and the Dominoes plays in the background. Yes. It reminded me of that. It just, everybody starts dropping. Katie, have you seen Goodfellas? No. But, but am I right? Are We're going to have a movie marathon <laughs> at Katie's house. We have to watch all the Indiana Jones movies and now Goodfellas. Hey, everybody out there listening, email us. Email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com. Send us a list of movies that you think Katie should uh, watch <laughs> by the time she turns 30. And sometime yeah. between now and October, oh, if I'm not giving man. too much away. Yeah. We're going to watch every movie that is on the list. So please do that. Follow up and send us some movie lists. I like that. Let me ask this, though. The the individuals who are ending up dead in Arkansas, uh-huh. you know, the Goodfellas scene, all of these individuals that are ending up dead are, they were part of the the crime. Right. Is it the same in Arkansas? Because the boys were not. I think it's some combination of they know something that happened about 
on the tracks that night, I mean, or maybe they were involved in the people. drug trade. Okay. I don't think it. I think somebody. I think every one of them died for somebody's convoluted reason. Just, mm-hmm. but the that boys they were go. truly innocent. Well, there's in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's one theory. There, there are theories out there that they hid in the woods that night because they had figured out the drug drop thing and they wanted to steal some drugs. So there, there are alternate theories about why they were out there that night. But we know from Curtis Henry telling the story that they were going out spotlighting. It was the Saturday night before school started. They grabbed a rifle and a flashlight and just went out to have a good time in the woods like teenage boys and do. And Don went hunting often, if yeah. not almost every day. Sure. He, he knew those woods. He, his dad trusted him with a rifle. He trusted him out in the middle of the night on his this own. This was his favorite pastime. Sure, yeah. So I personally believe that they were truly innocent that they were out there i think it's most doing likely. their own yeah. thing and some they you know discovered yeah. something i don't I, think they they were trying to steal drugs i, think, I really don't i don't I, either and i maybe. but just, that's you know it's as plausible it I is mean, a that's plausible a big explanation task, though you know yeah. i mean yeah yeah they might have been like oh crap what you know what is that mm-hmm. you know trying to see or he yeah, or just, maybe don had said hey you want to say something cool yeah. You know, yeah. or something like that. But um, I think they were truly innocent. But I just didn't know if everybody else. Like going to check out the dead body and stand by me. You know, they're. Yeah. Yeah. Katie. There's have another you seen movie. That? Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Start writing this down. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. So let's get back to the story. We're going to wrap up the portion of the story now that deals with everybody's favorite Egyptian medical examiner. Oh. <sighs> Finally. In 1991, Fami Malik was forced to resign as the Arkansas State Medical Examiner. This because Governor uh, Bill Clinton okay. has uh, decided to gear up a run for the presidency in 1992, and he doesn't want every reporter in the country that he encounters asking him about the boys on the tracks, the headless guy who died of a stomach ulcer, and the five gunshot wounds to the chest suicide victim. Mm-hmm. And maybe possibly his mother. Yes. Yeah. We talked about that last yeah. week. So Malik resigned as state medical examiner and then was immediately hired back by the state of Arkansas to serve in a less conspicuous capacity. So maybe they gave him a, a basement office with a red stapler to play with. No, it's like on Silicon Valley when the people go up to the roof and they just hang out all day and get a yeah. paycheck. He was on the roof. Yeah. If that's you it. haven't seen yeah. Silicon Valley, you should watch that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Katie, have you seen Office Space? Yes. Okay, so you yes. got the red stapler joke. Yes, I have All seen right. Office Space. Hey, one in a row for me. All right. All right, so that resignation sequence did not stop the LA Times newspaper in May of 1992 from researching and then writing an in-depth article to try and get to the bottom of Malik's nearly two dozen flimsy autopsy findings and Governor Clinton's apparent willingness to go to great lengths to protect him, mm-hmm. no matter how much of a fuck-up Fami apparently was. Oh, and, oh, I mean, you know, or air quotes not. I mean, maybe he's not. doing exactly what he was told <laughs> yeah, to do. Maybe so. Anybody who reads that LA Times story, and you can find it online, you will discover that there is a very interesting theory out there about why, up until his run for national office, Bill Clinton had repeatedly seemed so eager to publicly defend Fahmy Malik. I 100% yeah. know why. Despite the man's complete absence of common sense or freshman-level forensic skills, mm-hmm. yeah. the theory involves Clinton and his mother, who was a nurse anesthetist. I can't believe I pronounced that right on the that first That is trial. a hard Look at you word. Go. I, I did that in the car it's on the way over. It's because you're sober today. Anesthetist. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Uh, now, Clinton's mom, who was the nurse anesthetist, may or may not have been responsible for at least one death on an operating table. Although it, she was cleared by Fami Malik of any wrongdoing with another strange uh, autopsy finding. 
If you don't know this story, but you hate Bill Clinton and you want to hate him some more, <laughs> pull up this story. <laughs> you will not be disappointed. It's not hard to find. The no. story's not hard to find. LA Times, May 92, Bill Clinton, Fami Malik, M-A-L-A-K. Search it for yourself. You'll, it's, it's not a terribly long article, but I did read it on Friday and it's, uh, it lays out the whole thing. Quite clearly. He he was, uh, in my opinion, obligated to protect Fami Malik after Fami protected his mother. Whether or not she was responsible right. or if it was truly an accident. Yeah. Now, that is unclear. That's true. But he, It just adds another fish to this fishy pile. It did. But Fami Malik 100% uh, co- covered for her or whatever yeah. the right terminology is. And so Bill Clinton, I think, felt obligated. Fami Malik died in Florida in 2018 at the age of 85. The cause of death is not mentioned in his obituary, although perhaps he became comatose from THC intoxication and his dog ate his head. I think it was a stomach ulcer. Or some combination of the three. We can only hope, right? Anyway, so now Fami Malik is finally off our radar for good. Let's get back to the boys on the tracks. In the process of doing that, we must now begin the process of ridding ourselves forever of our former good friend, Dan Harmon, who turned out to be a double extra large bag of dicks. Yeah, Mm. pretty much. Despite the initial hopes of Linda Ives, the hopes that she held back when Harmon was appointed the special prosecutor of the grand jury, that was the first to look into the deaths of the boys back in 1988. That was after she had the press conference in February of 88. That's how we ended episode one. So we've made the connection that drug smuggling somehow most likely had something to do with the reason why Kevin and Don were killed that night. We told you about Barry Seal and the airplanes at Mena. And we mentioned last week that at the time of the boys' murders, the Saline County area of Arkansas was a den of drug activity, likely being overseen by members of the local law enforcement community. There's one other item about airplanes that Linda Ives learned when she went through those FBI files. The Saline County Sheriff's Department had received multiple reports throughout 87 and 88 from people who lived near that stretch of railroad tracks. People were calling in to report that planes were zooming in low over the tracks in the middle of the night with their lights off. Of course, we now know why none of those reports were ever investigated. Yes. Mm -hmm. But we have a pretty good idea that someone was dropping drugs out of an airplane along that desolate stretch of railroad tracks. Yep. And because of other facts that were revealed in later years, we now know that Dan Harmon was the king of the hill, top of the heap drug dealer in Saline County at that time. And he was basically using this case to call people in, call them onto the stand and find out what they knew. That's right. Yeah. That's what he, he was. He had hijacked the grand jury that was supposed to be looking into the deaths of Kevin and Don and turned it into a, I'm going to call you in here, find out what you know about this drug investigation that I'm mm-hmm. a subject of. Mm-hmm. And then I can incriminate you if I have to. Did any of those individuals wind up dead? I think some of them did, yeah. I think those are, um, if they hadn't been called to the grand jury yet, some of those murder victims were on the list of people who were expected to be called. So they probably knew too much. And uh, that's the supposition, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The body count rises. Yep. (sighs) All right. So. There were members of that grand jury who could not believe what they were hearing about the seriousness of the drug problem in Saline County, only to find themselves even further infuriated when repeatedly Dan Harmon refused to to pursue any charges related to all of that drug activity that they were hearing about. Are you comfy? Yeah. Do we need to pause the thing? Can we give her a a, a footrest? 
This is not on video. <laughs> so we do a podcast every week, ladies and gentlemen. And I know that you can't see us, but obviously Scott can see me. And I happen to shift in my chair a little bit. You got a little fidgety there. I thought an ant was crawling on your leg or something. It looked weird. <laughs> so Harma's excuse for this inaction was that the grand jury wasn't looking into the drug problem. It was looking into who killed Kevin Ives and Don Henry. And when the grand jury wrapped up at the end of the year, Judge John Cole refused to let the grand jury's final report, which was made public, include anything at all about the drug activity and all of those revelations of trafficking that they had uncovered over the course of their investigation, which ran for nine months and called a total of 125 witnesses. So he just said none of that can go in there. That's right. Why did he say that? I can, tell you what, I can tell you what some of the conspiracy theorists is that think he's part of that it. he was in on it. He knew, he knew what was going on. He had to agree to let Dan Harmon be the special prosecutor of, for that grand yeah. jury. Yeah. Because he was just a private attorney. Wow. I mean, Richard if, Garrett, oh, Richard yeah, Garrett, yeah, yeah. Richard Garrett went to Judge Cullen and said, I want Dan Harmon to lead this grand jury And why did Richard Garrett want that? He's in on it too. Mm. You know what? They wow. were all in on it. Wow. And it's really strange. At least that's the way it looks to me. But you want to ask this, if the judge was not in on it, how? How did these things happen if the judge was not in on it? Yeah, and and yeah. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm a judge and I'm sitting there listening to that day after day, I'm going to be like, what does this have to do with anything, son? I mean, I'm going to, you know, pull that in my courtroom. You're wasting my, what are you talking about? Yeah, we're we're trying to find out who killed these two boys. Stop asking about drugs. But he, he allowed it to continue and then he, didn't allow it in the report. Correct. Yeah. The official word from the grand jury was that the boys were probably murdered, but there were no indictments, no recommendations for additional charges, and no mention of what seemed to be an official cover-up from the very beginning. Because if you're none on of this, that was in the final. So report. all for this, what? Well, if you're on this grand all jury, for if you're on this grand jury, you're either there because they want you there, or you truly have figured out what the heck is going on here and you're going to say, nope, nothing to see here. Yeah. Well, they were frustrated by it. There are interviews that you can see in documentaries about this case with members of that grand jury. Oh, and they were frustrated. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were pissed. They're they're just normal people off the street like you and me who get called into a grand jury. Ten ten men and six women, I think, or vice versa, and they spent nine months. Yeah. So they're just truly, they didn't know anything about what was going on. They're, they're probably put there because they didn't know anything well, was going nobody on. Nobody knew it at the time. And then they're mad because we've wasted all this time and then you can't even put this yeah, in Yeah, and, and zip it up. Don't say anything. So Harmon's plan to divert attention away from the Saline County drug scene continued just like we just described and it worked pretty well for several years, especially after he ran for and was elected county prosecutor in 1990. Mm-hmm. That new position gave Harmon all the authority he needed to shut down any drug task force investigation that got too close to his drug dealing. Mm-hmm. That elected position was one that Harmon still held in 1996, which turned out to be the year that his world finally began to implode around him. Mm. Do you want to know about that six-year stretch between 90 and 96? I suggest YouTube. Search for a channel called Carnage on Ice. Oh, Lord. Dozens of hours of videos. You can find out as much as you want to know about everything that happened to Dan Harmon and anything to do with the boys on the tracks for those six years. We're not going to go into that six-year stretch here because here we are again at the edge of another rabbit hole. 
Yeah. And the batteries on my flashlight are just about to go dead. <laughs> I will tell you two things quickly. Number one, the people who live in Arkansas are still talking about those six years to this day. Mm. And number two, if you decide to dig into this and you do find out what I'm talking about, you won't fucking believe it anyway. Mm. Gosh. How many deaths over the course of those years? Do you know? Can you guess? From 87 to 91, there were nine execution-style killings in Saline County. All right. How many? That's how, entirely too many. Yes, yeah. it is. How many when Dan Harmon's in his spot? Uh, started in 87, so oh, I don't know exactly. All the way to 96, though, is what I mean. Like yeah, a, a lot. I mean, a lot of those that, that we're talking about in that number of six, they happened before he was elected yeah. county prosecutor because- that's when the grand jury was trying to find out what was going on, yeah, what so had happened with I the guess boys. Were there after he's elected? Sure. How many deaths? Oh, I don't know the, the number. I don't know. I, I kind of skipped over that part. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, it's I, actually, carnage. I didn't skip over it, but I just don't remember it exactly. It's called Carnage on Ice. Carnage so on like, Ice is the name crap. of the YouTube channel where you can watch uh, documentaries about a lot of aspects of this case. Different. Dan Harmon, huh? The guy tackles it from, he talks about the sheriffs that were involved in this. He talks about. Uh, the other public officials. He takes the drug tact with Barry Seal in one documentary. There's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I've watched a few. I didn't get a chance to see them all. Mm-hmm. So those FBI notes that Linda Ives finally got a look at came from an investigation that had begun in December of 1993 after Linda's private investigator found a witness to the events that night on the tracks. The FBI found the witness so credible that they put him in the witness protection program and opened an investigation. Okay. The most vital piece of information that that witness provided was that when he, when he was on that the tracks that night in another area where he could see what was going on, he recognized Dan Harmon himself because his mother was dating Dan Harmon at the time. Holy oh crap. Dan he, Harmon was there. He knew Dan Harmon. He said, I saw Dan Harmon on the tracks. And that detail about Harmon's presence on the tracks that night was one that turned out to be a common thread among several people who eventually had the courage to come forward and tell the FBI what they had seen during that FBI investigation. Mm-hmm. Is this person still in the witness protection program? He's dead. As far as we know. He's dead. The informant? Yeah. The, the one in the witness protection? Yeah. I saw that somewhere, that he's since passed away. Passed away of? I don't know. Being murdered? or I, I don't know. Oh, my God. I don't know. His last name was Nyhaus, N-E-I-H-A-U-S, Maybe do a search here. I've got his first name somewhere further down in my notes, but I I will mention him. Okay. And you can look that up. Uh, One witness said he saw two two teenage boys being beaten up and tossed into a patrol car by law enforcement officers on the Saturday night before the boys died on the tracks. This allegedly took place outside a convenience store near the railroad tracks where the boys were found the next morning. A key detail here was that the witness said he saw one of the cops toss a rifle into the car as the boys were being manhandled into the back seat, and we know that Don had his rifle with him that night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another witness came forward to claim that she knew for a fact that Dan Harmon and Keith McCaskill were on the tracks that night. Remember him? He's our dead bartender. Yep. Mm-hmm. That woman even signed a written confession attesting to, to those facts. Is she still alive? She's in jail. Nah, she's not in jail anymore. Another witness claimed to have seen Don Henry stabbed in the back. And Kevin Ives hit in the face with the butt of a rifle, like the one the boys had with them, perhaps. That version of events explains the stab wound in Don's torso and the hole in his t-shirt. Yep. 
It explains the blunt force facial injury that the medical examiner from Atlanta identified on Kevin's face. Yes. And it explains why the rifle was never turned in as evidence after being collected from the scene by law enforcement. Right. Mm -hmm. It was becoming clearer and clearer, at least to anyone with a court of common sense, that Kevin and Don had stumbled across a drug drop zone that night while they were out hunting with their spotlight. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they had tried to flee from the scene only to be run down outside the convenience store and hauled back to the tracks by two men who were not Dan Harmon and Keith McCaskill. So now there are at least four people yep. on the hook for double murder and all of them involved in local law enforcement. Insane. The in people, some way or another. The people who are supposed to protect these citizens and then the people who are supposed to get to the bottom of what happened to their death, there they all are. Yep. That night. One FBI document from the two-plus-year investigation that they conducted contains the heading Local law enforcement believed to be involved in the murders. That header is followed by a long list of names, all blacked out, all redacted. It's half a page long. <laughs> They're all blacked out. You can see that FBI document and hundreds more at a website called idfiles.com. So Linda the, Ives started that website before she died. Okay, so the FBI sounds like they're trying to do their job. So what do we think is happening? The CIA's figured out what's going on and they come in and go, uh-uh, this is not going to happen. Well, eventually the CIA, I mean, the, the FBI is going to do the same thing that everybody else has done. They're going to throw up their hands and say, we're not really sure anything happened. Shut down the investigation. Hmm. Yeah. Then why even start the investigation? Well, because they thought, hey, we're the FBI. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And then somebody higher up the food chain. Said, no, somebody said, no, shut you're not. Down. Yeah, you're shut down. Yeah. That's what happened. They didn't throw up their hands because they couldn't figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. They threw up their hands because they knew what happened and they were shut up about it. Mm-hmm. Is And that's my opinion. But I mean, yeah. why else would the FBI? Yeah. Between do 19, this? yeah, between December of 93 when they opened that investigation. And when it was closed in the spring of uh, 1996, agents generated 16,000 pages of information. A lot, uh, uh, 2,000 or so are available on that website that I mentioned, idfiles.com. And how many presidents have we gone through? Uh, that would be uh, three. Reagan, Reagan Bush, Bush, and Clinton. Clinton. Okay. That's right. Um, but now is a lot Clinton of those- president when the investigation is shut down? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's elected president in November of 92. He takes office in January of 93. Then he was reelected in November of 96. Yeah, and he didn't leave office until January of 2001. So that whole time there, Clinton is president. But now those 2000 uh, documents that you can see at idfiles.com, a lot of them are redacted. Yeah. A lot yeah. of it's missing. Um, so the FBI closed the investigation, like I said, in April of 96. No charges were filed. There have been other investigations in the years since, but nothing has ever come of it. No indictments, no charges, no justice. No. no. Yeah, no. But we are going to wrap up today's story with a little bit of good news. All right. County Prosecutor Dan Harmon's life was beginning to slowly unravel in 1992, and it was complete by 97. In 92, he was found guilty of not paying taxes for four years. They fined him 25 bucks and gave him two weeks of home detention. But, you know, Todd Chrisley and Julie Chrisley, they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. in prison. Yeah, they're, they're breaking rocks and making license plates. Mm-hmm. At some point during this time, this four-year uh, period, Harmon filed for bankruptcy. He also got divorced from his wife, allegedly after he punched and threatened to kill her on several occasions. Well, he's just she so should cool. leave. He's yeah. just a great guy. Yeah. In 1995, he, handed, he and his shit... 
1995, he and his then-girlfriend broke into the evidence room at the local police station and stole a bag of cocaine that had been seized from a drug bust. It turned out to be a fake brick of cocaine, but there was no doubt where it had come from because it was marked as having been in his evidence locker when it was discovered. Fake cocaine? What, it, what was it? It was part of a, of a, of a drug deal with, a, with, an, uh, with an informant, so he couldn't really do drugs, so it was fake drugs. I don't know. I'm confused about the details there, but somehow it ended up being not real. So he couldn't but use, it looked like the ones that were beside it. They just grabbed the wrong one. So did he snort some bacon soda um, or something? I don't know. <laughs> Two hours later, when he's he doesn't feel different, he's like, "Wait a minute." So why why is he having such a hard time getting a hold of drugs now? I mean, I thought drugs were abundant. well. It turns out that part of his plan uh, was he would extort money from like if there was a drug bust. If somebody's driving through Saline County, they get pulled over and drugs are found in their car. Harmon would confiscate the drugs. Tell them, hey, you be back in 30 days for a court date, wink. But he wouldn't pursue them. He, Just keep the basically, drugs. Basically, I'll keep the drugs. And maybe sometimes he would say, hey, pay me five grand. Mm-hmm. And, and when, when your court date comes... We'll just throw it out and forget about it. But I mean, cops that happened had to, several times. Some of these cops had to be in on it. Absolutely. Dan Harmon's not the one pulling these people over. You know, he's, yeah. a, he's a prosecutor. Right. So he's not, he's not a cop. So when they're bringing these drugs so they in have for this evidence, operation. he's just saying, yeah. don't check that in. Yeah. And they're for, even if, or he lets say, them check it in and he throws away the filing. Uh, the yeah. Billboard. So let's mm-hmm. say it's a truly an innocent cop who's trying to do the right thing. And now all of a sudden, where the heck did my, Evidence go. Yeah. Where does everything go? You know, why does it always stop when we get to the prosecutor? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I'm not really sure how he didn't get in more trouble about the fake brick of cocaine, but it, it, apparently he didn't get into a lot of trouble. Well, because technically it wasn't drugs. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> well, steal yeah, drugs. I guess so, right? Yeah. Um, but finally, he did the next thing. And that was in October of 1996. He got himself arrested on drug charges. Whoopsie. At long last. At least the Ives family and the Henry family got some justice, even if it wasn't a conviction for committing the crime that our former good friend Dan Harmon is widely believed to be involved in. In June of 1997, Harmon was found guilty on five of 11 counts of drug dealing, extortion, and racketeering. All of it was key evidence to back up most of the speculation about what had happened to Kevin and Don that night on the tracks a decade earlier now. And it was as close to vindication as the Ives and Henry families would ever get. Yep. Harmon went to prison for that uh, crime, for those crimes, for several years, but he was back on the streets by 2010 because that's when he was arrested again, this time for selling illegal drugs to an undercover cop. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, and one last thing. You guys remember Richard Garrett? We figure he was probably in on it too. He was the guy who brought Dan Harmon in to be the special prosecutor. Yeah, the the uncanny. <clears throat> yeah, hair, yeah. Hair, hair one way, way mustache the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So years later, he moved out of Saline County, and the guy who bought his house was doing some remodeling in the basement. Tore down a wall and found what was left of a meth lab in his basement. No go. Oh no. No wonder his hair was one way and his mustache yeah. was the other. Good Lord. So to say that multiple members of law enforcement in Saline County were involved in the drug trade in the 1980s is both simultaneously accurate and an understatement. Yes. It seems like the only person not on drugs in the story was Fami. Yeah. 
Vami and the three of us, and that's it. <laughs> that God, that we know of, though. <laughs> we know of. <laughs> so sorry again, guys, if it seemed like you had to drink from a fire hose today on this. It was an awful lot to cram into three episodes. I do have one question. Sure. May I ask it? Yeah. Um, the the guy, the bartender that was found. Keith McCaskill. Murder, Keith McCaskill. Who did they convict for that crime? Nobody. Oh, they did convict. They did convict a neighbor who lived across the street who was, uh, he was a learning disabled boy. He had a, a minimum IQ. And I forget the exact circumstances. He admitted to being there, but he said that he saw other people kill McCaskill. In clown masks. In clown masks, yes. He there saw were, them. But he changed the story. First, there were three of them, and then there were five, and they found blood on him. And he said, yeah, I was over there because I walked in on it. And they sent him to prison? He got 10 years for, he got 10 years. He got 10 years. Here's the deal. This man, was he a man? Or was yeah. he a kid? He was 18 or 19, I 18 think. 18 or 19. Physically could not have committed this crime. He was disabled to the point of, there's no way he's going to stab this man. Mm-hmm. And this man, you know, how be able to fight him off. Yeah. This big burly bartender who breaks up fights in bars all the time as part of his job. Yep. And they were fine to say it was this guy and he went to, he went to prison for it. Mm. Just to, Horrible. let's just make you, a little angrier. Yeah. yeah. Just a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Moves, moves we, on. Guys, we could have done an entire season out of this story. We could have. And there are podcasts that do, that have. Yeah. Yeah. You They're should out check, there. You should check them out and, and get into these rabbit holes. Yeah. And I know some of the people out there may be saying, uh, why didn't we talk about Gene Duffy? What about uh, Keith Comey? What about Celine County investigator John Brown or Charlene Wilson? What about Tom Nyhouse? That's the boy who claimed that he knew Dan Harmon by silhouette Sorry. out on the tracks that night. Because he's dating my mom. That's right. But I mean, that's run not- mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we don't really do that here. We're the 100 level course of true crime, right? If you want to do some yeah, more we research. Are. We're, we're not the advanced if you want, If you want graduate <laughs> level research and presentation, go to Carnage on Ice, get on YouTube, find yep. some of these other podcasts. We've, we've pointed you in a direction, handed you a flashlight, shown you where the dark hole in the ground is. Go. It, jump if you like. It's on, it's on you now at this point. If you want to dig deeper into this, um, just heaping pile of dung. Yeah. Um, there you go. I mean, I'm, I'm torn over whether I believe it was a vast conspiracy or if it was two or three mini conspiracies going on that somehow managed to weave themselves into a big knot I think and overlap. That. Yeah. In my personal yeah. opinion, that's what I think I it think is. you've got the CIA gun running and then yeah. you've got Barry Seal and then you've got the drugs in Saline County and the crooked cops and law enforcement there. Mm-hmm. And it all just, but and Fami Malik. Yeah, but all that becomes this breeding ground for all of this. It's attracted to yeah. that because you have crooked cops. You got people who are supposed to be you know, serving and protecting this area and they're not doing that. In mm-hmm. fact, they're doing quite the opposite. And so then all the other flies that are attracted to dung are going to come your way. And yeah. so I think it's it's several many things, but it's I don't think it's a accident that it has an accident that it's happened in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I you, think you're right. If you are going to roll up in someone else's area where the cops are on the up and up and no one's mm-hmm. uh here in this drug mess, you're not going to be attracted to that area. In fact, he left New Orleans or not New Orleans, but yeah. Louisiana, Louisiana because of that very thing. Yeah, there was there the, was heat on him down there, so we had to find uh, 
a hole in the legal system and that hole existed in yeah, a place in, where this kind of thing was accepted. He uh, had to just find in Arkansas. A, a hole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I don't Ugh. think it's one big, vast conspiracy because it seems too complex yeah. to have been devised by the residents of Mayberry, North Carolina. Yeah. Which is and basically what these guys were. And I know that the guy from Cedar Bluff, Alabama just said that. <laughs> right. But still. But, but and, and it is, it's so unfortunate to the, the people and the citizens of this area and this town and even today that, that all of this happened uh, to them. And, you know, they had nothing. They had no one to protect them. They had no one to look out for them. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a prosecutor that had their best interest. They didn't have anybody. Kelly's getting pissed. I'm getting mad again. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. that's fine. Uh, but hey, that's that's all, folks. Uh, yeah. Turn out the lights. Party's over. Smoke them if you got them. Well, no, well, and Linda, may you rest in peace. Yeah. You had no peace in mm-hmm. your long time that you were here. Yeah. And uh, may you rest in peace. Katie's fucking up the board. No, she's no. You should have just kept on going. I that's well, all I, I was going to say. It's just I didn't have it I'm up good enough. I'm good. Technical difficulties, people. Yeah. So, all right. So the best way you can do something nice for us, yep. if you like this podcast, get online, give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps us move up the charts, and the higher we get, the more people will see us and yeah. give us a listen. So please review us and give us five stars. It's a great way to help us out if you like the show. Yeah, and that and you can do that for free. You can just log on and do that for free. And and if you don't know how to do it, find one of us and we'll do it for you. Heck we yeah, know how to do that. we've got a couple of canned responses to, <laughs> that we can uh, weave in anytime. I've said weave too many times in this episode. Uh, is that it? We done? Scott, you did an incredible yes, job. Did. Thank you so much. Enjoy your trip. We'll tell everybody about it next week when we do this again. That's right. Good night, everybody.